It's like, this is my last go at you, so I may use the entire time, the entire hour. Um, <clears throat> we'll see how it goes. I have things I really wanted to to make sure I got in, and it may, may take a good bit of our time. This has been, um, and continues to be, you know, very potent uh, kinds of teachings. And there's some things I'd like to weave uh, together. <clears throat> And in my own uh, anticipated kind of reflection on the exercise and the, the practice dharma activity we did, what Dogen's teachings do is they he, he turns us from both a past focused concern about you know all the things that happened to me, and he also turns us away from a future centered. Um, striving, which all of us um, seem to meet. And these two directions use and sometimes fight with and ultimately weeps over time, seeing it as a commodity we need to really utilize until it runs out. But instead, what Dogen does, I think, is he guides us toward a view that opens up to us the richness of time right now, our intimacy with it and our connection to all past, present, and future, like in your timeline. But as you do that activity, you're situated here now, presencing in this moment of being time, even as you reflect, all that's coming to you. And, and I think Dogen is hoping to, you know, free us to settle into the present moment, revealing all those moments in life of our practice as all expressions of awakening. At the core of Uji, is a focus on meeting the present with a fully engaged, unobstructed heart and mind, in tune with the kind of holistic being time that presences right now. So Uji, I know that's a little dense, but it's, it's, it's an important central piece, uh, the way I think about this, is that Uji is helping us focus on meeting the present with a fully engaged, unobstructed, unobstructed heart and mind, not refined, purified, fixed up, and unobstructed. And I'm going to talk about obstructions and horizons a little bit fully engaged, unobstructed heart and mind, in tune with, resonance with, the being time that presences right now. And I think another thing Dogen is attempting to do is to reveal to us, in touching the present moment, we touch 
all past times, for instance, all the way back to the time of the Buddha's enlightenment, and all future times, like the future deepening of your own realization. And you might, I say in touching the present moment, you know, if you put your hand on your paper that you did for your your exercise, your Dharma activity, and think that you're touching all of past time and all of future time, but then if you turn your hand over, we realize our we ourselves are moments of being time held in the palm of the Buddha. Now, I came across an interesting statement by Shinshu Roberts, who we've referenced because of her wonderful treatise on Uji. And in an interview, she said, um, our sincere inquiry, she used that word that we use in a special way, but she said, our sincere inquiry brings Dogen alive to stand with us. I love that phrase. If we sincerely inquire into these teachings, we bring Dogen alive to stand with us in our exploration of the teachings. If we understand that everything is part of our present experience, everything is part of our present experience, as the dynamic coming and going of the Buddha way, then we can enter the Dharma gate of being time. And she asks, is there anything missing? And then she references a line from the Genjo Koan, some of you are familiar with, where Dogen says, yet flowers fall and weeds spread even as we practice, the, the blossoms of our practice disappear and weeds come in where we thought was cleared up in our practice. Flowers fall and weeds spread. Yet in the midst of this, because it's like everydayness, all this stuff happens, in the midst of this, or maybe because of it, we continue to practice the Bodhisattva path. We continue to practice the Bodhisattva path because being time flows in this way. And she said further that experiencing our interconnectedness like we do in these retreats, like we do in our relationships with each other, experiencing our interconnectedness and interpenetrating relationship with all beings is the genesis of our happiness. Experiencing interconnectedness, experiencing our interpenetrating relationships is the genesis of our happiness, kindness. Like Peg and David talked about, it's kindness. Even the most mundane tasks become meaningful and fulfilling when we feel this and experience this universal connection with the totality of being. And we don't separate ourselves and make ourselves lonely, really. The true situation is that realization is actualizing what is fully presencing in this moment. What's here is being actualized 
by our realization, instead of made into a story, a narrative, something flat, something not right. Realization is actualizing what is presencing in this moment, including what we call ourself. And so our practice unfolds in the context of all reality coming forth from this very being time, which creates a flow of activity. And Roberts calls it this, she says, not delineated by sharp boundaries of before, after, then, and now. And in terms of time, we, we make these lines and put these dots and make, it seems like sharp boundaries, but practice unfolds in the context of all reality coming forth is this very being time, which creates a flow of activity not delineated by sharp boundaries. Now, I want to, I want to pull in two things to talk about these boundaries that are released as we come into the full presence of being time. Uh, many of you have heard me say quite often in teachings. I've drawn from um, a teaching of Dogen that this awakening has to do with intimacy with all things, and another teacher, Unman, that awakening is expressed through an appropriate response. This is um, meeting and responding. Um, the words that our friend and teacher Peter Hershock uses, uh, Peter is in Honolulu actually, but has written some beautiful books that have influenced me and Peg and many of us quite quite profoundly. In describing Chan practice, which is Zen in China originally, the original foundations of our practice, he calls it appreciative and contributory virtuosity. Appreciating and receiving the world, intimacy, and contributory, offering it back and meeting and responding. Concave and convex, receiving and offering. Intimacy and response. Appreciative and contributory. I love those words. Appreciate, our practice is appreciative and contributory virtuosity, which is improvisational in nature meeting situations without obstruction. And there's that word again, obstruction. Without an obstructed heart or mind, we meet each situation, presencing. And our task is to be improvisational, in other words, immediate, mindful, responsive, and how to appreciate the situation and contribute to it in a way that turns things towards freedom. And even, even the term beginner's mind, which we use all the time, has, you know, it has some of those qualities that we sometimes use when we describe uh, flow, you know, some of the research that's been done on flow states by athletes and artists, musicians, in which people do things that seem to be like almost impossible. I don't know about you, but when you watch certain athletes do things or you hear an opera singer or a musician play something and you think, that seems, I can't believe a human being can do that. And you read some of the things about the old Chan masters, it seems stunning. 
and inspiring. Um, but there's a there's a hook, um, a problem when we think about beginner's mind and the, the flow of experience of this appreciative and contributory virtuosity, the improvisational nature of it. Um, we meet things without obstruction. That's some of what flow does, but when we think about the spectacular results, we can get off base a little bit. For example, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little paragraph here, a small few sentences from Peter Hershock. And some of you that have read him before know that his, his language can be um, dense, but it's so beautiful it's hard to, uh, hard to ignore. So he's talking about this kind of training that an artist or an athlete might do. Like how do you, or a Chan master, how do you get to be this way? These are his words, and I'm going to stop and make a few comments here. He said, there could be no training in Chan that parallels the play-by-play drills of team athletes or the production of work of the apprentice craft worker. Because Chan virtuosity takes place in the infinite dramatic field of daily life. Your life. It's not on the board we write out the plays or, or in the studio we practice things. It's all happening. Chan virtuosity takes place on the infinite dramatic field of daily life. A field that has no sidelines or end zones where the action stops and where plans can be hatched and energy safely regained. We can't train in this way because there's not a single moment between birth and death on your line, uh, between birth and death, which we are not playing for keeps. We may want to take a retreat or take a step or two back to consider options, gather information, study the overall context of our situation, but time will not stop. There's no time out. The situation we set out to investigate and comprehend has ceased to exist even before we have completed the initiating thought. Boom. Unless we're willing to accept the consequences of acting on the basis of a present, we mostly imagine in terms of the past, we didn't really know it well enough to respond directly in the first place. So we must respond skillfully without hesitation, right now. For this, we must let go of tightness, rigidity, or narrowness of attention. That's why we open. What is needed is a mind that is as clear and boundless as space. And the Chan practice of realizing appreciative and contributory virtuosity can be seen in that way as the activation of non-duality. The activation of what we call non-duality. A systematic relinquishing of the horizons, those imaginary lines. A systematic relinquishing of the horizons binding three qualitative fields. The field for what we consider relevant, for what we consider our responsibility and the feel for our own readiness. 
relevance, responsibility, and readiness. These are the horizons that are released as we enact non-duality, which is appreciative and contributory virtuosity. And I'm, I'm using these terms because they're very different kind of language than Dogen uses, but it's about this presencing into time where we let go of the before, present, and after. Things begin to be released, released, which is a way of bringing forward the unobstructed heart and mind. Sometimes we just have to respond, he's saying. It can't be grasped. You can't nail it down. Sometimes we got to think about it, of course, about what to do. And oftentimes we totally miss the mark. I do. And, but here comes life at us in what seems like super speed. And we're like, what, what, what am I to do? I mean, when most of you come to inquiry with me, this is what you're bringing. You... in a million ways, some version why, and then you fill in the blank. As life is coming at us pretty quick. And we're going to have to respond. So meeting the present with a fully engaged, unobstructed mind in tune with what's presencing is our practice. And as Dogen is showing us, we say this over and over. In touching the present moment, we're touching all of the past, all of the future. And I love that phrase of being held in the palm of the Buddha in the, in the process. I want to say just a, a little about these horizons that Hershok is, is talking about. The first one is relevance. And remember, as I said, a horizon, I mean, I'm looking out right now, uh, toward these fields drop down below me and then I can see miles away the, the shoreline and then I can see the Pacific Ocean and then I can see the horizon on the ocean. I can even see the island of Lanai. There are many horizons that I can see. But the one at the where the ocean and the sky meet way out there is an imaginary line. All these lines we draw are imaginary. If I were to move, it would move. Because it's not a thing. And we draw these lines, and one of them he talks about is the line for relevance. And relinquishing the horizons for relevance is like saying, well, you know, this is important in my life or in my practice, and, and that's, that's not really, that's not relevant. And he's saying to open to appreciative and contributory virtuosity means that we have to consider the relevance of everything. And relinquishing our horizons, that line we, we make up, for relevance is a concrete expression of the emptiness of things. Because remember, emptiness suggests empty of individuality. And if everything is relevant, and there's no line, then it's a concrete expression of emptiness. It's like erasing the boundaries imposed on the 
meaning of things that we make, of the meaning we make of them, or our customary relationship with them. And so this process of relinquishing horizons for relevance frees things to mean more than they otherwise could in our small narratives. It opens them up. And as we free things of these restrictions that we normally place on them by our ideals and ideas on what they could mean or contribute to our shared situation is the deepening of our partnership and intimacy with them. So we don't put up a barrier. And it helps us attune to the needs of others in the situation as a whole. I love this phrase from Peter Hershock. He says, compassionately refusing to silence other things. Isn't that a great phrase? Compassionately refusing to silence other things. Refusing to pick and choose experiences according to self-centered likes and dislikes. This is relinquishing the horizon for relevance. So let's look at Responsibility, the second one he mentions. If we understand through our practice that everything is empty of an independent existence, then all things are meaningfully interdependent. Everything responds to and reflects and actually comes to being because of everything else. So we begin to realize over time, deeper and deeper, I think, that all things are always in constant relationship. Not only with just everything, but with our heart and mind. So we know when the ancestors talk about this thing, which I think is confusing, uh, no mind, what they're suggesting is there's no ultimate boundary separating me and you or my situation and your situation there exists what's kind of like a silent bond as all things reveal themselves as part of one family as I look out I'm situated in this small cabin in acres of native forests in Hawaii that have been replanted because I can see a boundary several hundred yards away where there's a fence and everything beyond that fence is invasive species. And there's a whole history to that in time. Ricky Cook, on whose land we're right now, his family has owned this land for five generations. His book, which he did on Molokai, he's a National Geographic photographer. The book is called An Island in Time. And what I'm seeing is the result of how people have treated the land, both with the invasive species and then the clearing and the restoration. And the result is an ornithologist came not too long ago, a state ornithologist, and was identifying birds that he hadn't seen in 50 years. Because of this little postage stamp of land, you know, 20 or 30 acres, that has been restored to the natural habitat, and the birds found it from, from the mountains. 
There exists a silent bond as things reveal themselves as part of one family. So awakening is a little bit like being the ocean where all the streams flow, the rivers flow. And it doesn't disown, doesn't say, well, not that one, but draws all things near and transforms their meaning. Not blaming, not justifying, not rejecting, not bullying. It transforms their meaning since we're all relating. We have a responsibility to each part of ourselves because we are part of the whole. Everything is relevant, there's nothing to push away, and we have this shared responsibility. This is part of unobstructedness. And the third one he speaks about is readiness. And I, I thought this was a very cheeky and wonderful statement. Um, Peter says, awakening can only be ignored or resisted. In other words, it's going to happen. The key to liberating all beings successfully is not infinitely extensive and unrelenting training or effort, but simply horizonless readiness. The simple way of saying this one is when I work with students and their primary response is, yes. Not in a foolish way of uh, submission, but a willingness, a readiness. So in our practice, we don't give up, you know, the everyday stuff, the tools we use to work and our, our food and our relationships with other people, and that's not what we're relinquishing. But as we let go of these horizons, then we can offer up the energy that's been bound up in our habitual maintenance of ourself and the difference between self and other and our likes and our dislikes, all these boundaries, all these horizons bind up energy. And unobstructed, it's freed. And the release of this energy demonstrates to us this readiness to realize that this very place where we stand, walk, sit, lie down, this, this is the place of awakening. And by practicing in this way, we're directly manifesting by our actual conduct, not some idea, the confidence and faith that all things share the same enlightened nature. There's, there's no need to set up some goals for future attainment. That's another horizon. But only to give up the root duality of who is or who's not ready for awakening. It's kind of like saying in the old Chinese tradition, uh, the pure land is here, not some fixed destination to be sought. But in some ways, it's like a direction for the meaning of our situation as a, as a whole right now. All that's lacking sometimes is just our readiness to realize it. So there's a little sort of summary statement about these 
horizons from uh, Peter Hershock again, I'll read to you. He says, the goal or path can be blocked, but nothing can stop us from facing in the proper direction. And I'll pause there. Our, our practice is about helping us orient and face in the proper direction. Things can get in our way, but we can always keep orienting ourselves. That's what our vow is for. His words again. By continuously relinquishing as they arise all horizons for relevance, responsibility, and readiness, we live the lives of bodhisattvas, demonstrating unlimited skill and the means of realizing true liberating relationships. Here's the essence of apamada, of the way we practice, the way we teach. Realizing truly liberating relationships. Relationships only happen among us. We're talking about human ones right now, but it's relationship with everything, with these bodies. Only by doing so are we in no position of experience to resist things and ourselves and awakening. Given, giving rise to no fixed view and no horizons, we find ourselves moving naturally in the direction of expressing appreciative and contributory virtuosity. And that is, after all, our Buddha nature. <clears throat> so, we've spoken about meeting the present with a fully engaged, unobstructed heart and mind, in tune with the presencing of being time, realizing that actualization of what is fully present in this moment is it's what we're embodying as we release the ideas we have, which we call horizons for, for relevance, what's important, for responsibility, our embeddedness, and for readiness, our willingness. So with our understanding of releasing the obstructions, relinquishing of these horizons, would you look at section 16? I'm going to jump and Uji, in section 16, there's a little story there with some, and I'll read it, um, but if you want to take a moment to find it, that would be great too. It's not, not long. <clears throat> it says, Zen master Rijin of Shi Prefecture is the heir of Shushan, a dharma descended of Lenji. One day he taught the assembly. For the time being, mind arrives, but words do not. For the time being, words arrive, but mind does not. For the time being, both mind and words arrive. For the time being, neither mind nor words arrive. Both mind and words are the being time. Both arriving and not arriving are the being time, or the, are the time being. When the moment of arriving has not appeared, the moment of not arriving is here. Mind is a donkey, words are a horse. Having already arrived is words, and not having left is mind. Arriving is not coming, not arriving is not, not yet. 
So once again, Dogen in his clarity. <laughs> um, in this kind of four-part statement, which runs through all the possible negations and affirmations, um, this is really typical of, of Zen, um, the writings of Nagarjuna, but it comes from the logic of Indian Buddhism. This is kind of a common thing. You'll see these ways of, it's like A, B, A but not B, B but not A, both and neither. It's, it's, a, it's not important that you remember that so much, but that's kind of where it comes from. And here it's uh, referring to one of the really important issues that's always raised in Zen practice, which is the relationship between the state or um, maybe our experience of truth or awakening and the expression of it. It's a little bit like appreciative and contributory. It's whatever we might realize and how we can live it. And vow is kind of the the bridge there. And the issue expressed is a huge thing in Zen. It doesn't matter what you think, what you studied, what you can talk about. Is it in your body? How do you do things? How do you respond to people and yourself? How do you live? Zen is not, it's not really about meditation. That's why I kind of mentioned that the other day when we were talking about Zazen. Zen's really about action, about expressing your life. So the relationship between the awakening and the expression of awakening is really important and is, and is in the middle of Uji. So this is what he's actually talking about here in these four lines in section 16. Sometimes awakening arrives, but not expression. Sometimes expression, but not awakening. Sometimes both, sometimes neither. So the four lines are describe the possibility of four kind of perspectives along the practice path, four orientations. Sometimes it's thought of as four uh, steps, but steps and stages gets a little funky. I'll talk about it a little. So here's something you might use to open up this sequence, and I sometimes do this, is switch around words a little bit. So I apologize once again to Dogen for this. And in your little note thing, you can make a note of this if you want. See what happens when you exchange the word mind and realization. In other words, everywhere you see mind, put realization. And everywhere you see words, put actualization. So here's how it would read. For the time being, realization arrives, but actualizing does not. For the time being, actualization arrives, but realization does not. For the time being, both realization and actualization arrive. For the time being, neither realization nor actualization arrive. It has a little different feel, doesn't it? And so you could even go further. Here's another variation that I was playing with. See what happens when you exchange the word mind and awakening For words and with expression. Hold on, I got that confused. 
and you could substitute the word arrives, uh, put in unfolds. So instead of realization, I'm saying you can put awakening. Or instead of mind, you can put awakening. And instead of words, you can put expression, which before we put actualization. Anyway, it would sound like this. For the time being, awakening unfolds, but expression does not. For the time being, expression unfolds, but awakening does not. And you go on. There's just ways to... I think, to me, it made it more alive because when I read only mind and words, I wasn't sure. But when I started looking at realization and actualization, what I realized and what I could actualize, uh, and awakening and expression, it, it, it became more dynamic a little bit. So let's look at just the first line. The first line is about truly feeling the depth of our practice, but not knowing how to really think about it or how to express it. Do you remember this? Maybe like yesterday <laughs> or years, it doesn't matter. It's about when you, you feel the depth of the practice, maybe you're called to it, but you don't, but you can't conceptualize it really, and you certainly don't know how to express it. It, it's, it's beginning to dawn on us. We're beginning to feel it. I don't know how many people have come to me, and this was my experience. When I first walked into a zendo and began to practice, I didn't feel like I was um, learning something new. I felt like I was remembering something. So it begins to dawn on us. We begin to feel it, but, but we don't know what to make of it. It's a, it's a little like a teenager you know, where there's like all this feeling tone and experiencing in the body, but there's not a lot of discernment and clear expression of what's going on yet. Only a, a lot of impulses and often misguided actions. In other words, it's, it's not quite mature. For the time being, realization arrives, but actualization does not. Awakening begins to unfold, but expression does not just in the beginning. Like, what, what? There's something here. And then in the second line, now maybe you've gone a little further, and now you can maybe express the truth, but as soon as you express it, you start to like kind of lose track of it. It starts to fall apart because you're not ready quite yet to express it and you get caught up in your attempt to express it. When we begin to talk about it and enact it, it doesn't sound quite right. You can express what's going on as best you can discern, but you can tell that there's something missing. It's not complete. And you can easily lose what you realized intuitively when you began to try to cognize it. As you struggle to express yourself, or to a teacher, or to a friend, and trying to rush through all this stuff falls in here. This is really common for any of you who have been asked to teach a class or give a Dharma talk, step into the role of head student, which Cam will do on Sunday. Maybe you've gone further. For the time being, expression unfolds, but but awakening does not. You're beginning to see 
how to move with it. And the forms are great because you began to express yourself just by following the forms. But then when you try to, somebody says, well, what does that mean? Where does that come from? How do we understand the teachings? Uh, why don't we just bow <laughs> and sit? It's hard to... Expression begins to unfold, but you're not clear. So you go to the third line, for the time being awakening, excuse me, both awakening and expression unfold. So in the third line, you're finally ready to express yourself more fully. The truth is uh, more full in us, and we realize we can express at least some of it. So both realization and actualization, both awakening and expression, start coming forth together. So we begin to find our way to express what's going on and actualize what we're realizing. They, they move together. So we open to a little more and we can express a little more clearly, more skillfully. So you might actually have some profound experiences. And now you can begin to share this. Uh, you can express it, you can actualize it what you have realized in some way, and hopefully for the benefit of other people. And the fourth line, or the fourth stage, depending on how you're looking at this, you go beyond the realization and actualization to realize, actually, this is too much. We begin to feel the subtle grasping and identification that starts to go on. We think we're practicing Zen. We think we know something about it. We think we're expressing it. And eventually, we let go of all of that. Not the practice, but all of that. We actually don't think in the same way that there is actually any awakening. And we don't think that there's any special expression of it. But this isn't giving up or doubt. We realize we're just living our lives. Perceiving what we perceive, responding according to the request. So neither realization nor actualization, awakening or expression, can contain the fullness of being, nor time. These things that we've set up as important can't contain the fullness of being time. We didn't know, and as teachers we can't warn people that you're going to have to let go of everything. This is the dropping away that Dogen speaks about. But we do over time, and we talked about this in inquiry a little bit, stop getting caught so much in the back and forth of rumination and depression and striving and failing, bliss and anguish, all this dualistic attempt to get somewhere or failing to do so. So with Suzuki Roshi's no-gaining idea, 
we just respond to whatever's happening with greater freedom and steadiness. We just respond with a lot more flexibility, improvisational virtuosity, ease, and steadiness without being thrown off quite so much. Not caught by these perceived horizons of readiness, relevance, and responsibility. So these four lines, the reason I'm focusing on them, are sort of like the Four Noble Truths in a way. They're not things to be believed in or rules to be followed. They're things to be engaged. They're tasks. The first line, just be wholehearted and open-minded. And just be curious about what's being called up all the time. There is awakening, but not expression. So just observe your life with love. Observe what happens with love. No need to fix anything or do anything particularly. Just be with everything as love. Nothing's required. Second line, second stage, whatever. Don't worry too much about whether or not you're getting it right. Just offer yourself imperfectly. Offer yourself stumbling along and respond. Stop trying to be compassionate. Stop trying to be a good Zen student. Just respond. Forget about awakening. Forget about this love stuff and just respond like a human being. Just be ordinary. Do what everybody does. Sometimes it's too passive to observe with loving eyes and not respond. If the, if the building's on fire, run outside and grab somebody as you go. You know, take care of things. Line number three, do respond with love and awakening, wisdom and compassion. As an integrated, free-functioning human being, respond with loving kindness, continually relinquishing horizons, realization, actualization, moving together. And then number four, this is, this is sort of like the Taoist respond by no response. Let go of identification with everything you do. Go beyond what you think you are all of your ideas, let them drop away and just respond. This is like a virtuoso on an instrument. You don't think of the chords or the notes. Or the, you're just playing without any feeling of responding or not responding, without any feeling of awakening or non-awakening. Just let go. In the piece that follows these four lines, Dogen says something about awakening as a donkey and expression as a horse. These were all commonplace Chinese sayings. Um, in colloquial ancient Chinese, this meant sort of this and that, like ordinary stuff. But in Zen, the, the donkey has been taken to mean... Um, the 
um, you know, the donkey, the ass. Some somebody who's plodding along, and the horse is a stallion who's galloping and leaping. So the donkey is like somebody who's, like, I don't know. I can feel this way. It's someone who's struggling to study the way, and the horse is like someone who's mastered the way. Awakening is a donkey and expression is a horse. So maybe we can say the hard work of practice in the trenches is awakening. The seeming eloquence or power of a Zen master is expression. Being full of the teaching is expression, like the teacher. Not having been empty of the teaching of, of awakening is like the student. Arriving in the sense of arriving at awakening or arriving at understanding does not mean that you have come from somewhere else. You don't arrive from somewhere else. Not yet having arrived doesn't mean that you're not already here. So, for example, like if you have an experience like, oh my God, this is enlightenment. Now, now I get it. Boom. This would be an absolute sure sign that you have no idea what you're talking about. Because you think that it has arrived from elsewhere and it wasn't here before. This is Joko's statement. You've heard us say many times where a student asked her, are you enlightened? And she said, I hoped to never have such a thought. The sense is more like, oh, they were right. There's nothing, nothing to it. There never was. It's, it was always there, just like this. Awakening, the expression of awakening, being a student, being a teacher, then, now, yesterday, today, accomplishment, non-accomplishment are all just pictures. They're all just pictures. And these images that Dogen's using are just analogs for one another. The student in Zen stands for the everyday, the conventional, the effort that's required. The teacher in Zen stands for the absolute, full, full realization, always and already present. But they're just positions. They're just temporary pictures. Ultimately, they are the same time being. So they're all of ultimate value. They're just shifting positions. And an unobstructed heart and mind is free to move among all positions. We're always just shifting perspectives and positions within the inconceivable. It is inconceivable, but it's totally livable and realizable, this life, presencing, being, time. Anywhere you land is complete. Anywhere you grasp is off base. Except there's a completeness there too, isn't there? All of these so-called stages, by the way, 
are all presencing at all times. They're not actually lined up. So plunge in. Respond. Open it all by opening to it all. Forgive it all. And offer your all. So I know that's that's quite a bit. So we'll end there. We only have five or six minutes. If you'd like to be in small groups for a few moments to speak to each other, you, you can, or we can just simply move to our, um, our meal break and our... Um, well, our break time might be good just instead of to think about this, just to, re- to relax and enjoy a meal, as they say in the grass hut. I see Kim smile. Because <laughs> um, this is, I know, quite a bit, but I wanted to to trace this whole arc through here. Um, and hopefully it'll be of some benefit. So we'll be back <clears throat> for our uh, sitting and walking and inquiry uh, a bit later. And thank you for your attention and for your willingness to hang in there uh, with me through all of this and um, for your presence. Thank you. <laughs>